You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you, Jordy. It's always great to see you. It's even better to see Burns. So hopefully she's on her way soon. Um, so this morning, uh, I'm here to close up our Joshua series. I uh, only have 150 verses to cover, uh, so we'll have you uh, at work by 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so next week, we're going to be kicking off a series uh, through 1 Thessalonians, one of my favorite books. Uh, so I want to encourage you this week to spend some time reading uh, through chapter 1. The more you spend in it uh, the week, the more you'll get out of it on a Sunday morning. And so this morning, we're going to cover, in your Bibles, you can go to Joshua chapter uh, 20. So Joshua is this book, this unique book, and so much of it is about this idea of land. And here's the reason. The first five books, the Pentateuch, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, is this um, progressive kind of growing fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He then makes it to his son Isaac in Genesis 26. And then his grandson Jacob in Genesis 28. And God makes Abraham, he takes this pagan worshiper, and he sets him up and he makes him these promises. He says, you will be blessed and you'll be a blessing. He says, you're going to be a great nation and I will give you land. And then he says, these blessings, these benefits that you will have, they get to be experienced with me, your God. And that's actually the biggest blessing of all of them. That they get to be in covenant relationship with God and to be his people. So we're looking and they have been blessed. They are a great nation. But there was still one part of the promise that's yet to be fulfilled. They still were without land. They're outside the promised land. They're in Moab. And for 40 years, they have been wandering the wilderness, probably questioning, can God really or will he really keep his promise to us? Well, now Joshua, the new Moses, he's led the people into the final part of the promise, the land. So weeks and weeks ago, we looked, began in Joshua 1, 1 through 4. It's about them entering the land. The next eight chapters, it was about them conquering the land. And then Clint closed up last week looking at how they were to possess or possessing the land. Well, today, the last four chapters is going to be how do they hold fast to what God has given them. How do they hold to the land? So Joshua 1 through 19, the first three sections, it was the same thing over and over and over again. And it's about God's faithfulness, that he is absolutely faithful to his promises. God has done his part, and now the last four chapters, it's up to Israel. God has got them to the finish line. All they need to do is cross and cut that ribbon. Will they do this? How will they hold fast to the land? God has been faithful and now it is Israel's turn. It is their chance to step up to the plate? And so here we go. But the big question is, will they? So today, Joshua, he's going to make three final addresses 
to Israel. We're going to see over and over again, he's old, he's of many years. But we will see three unending truths about this God that we've seen over and over remain faithful to his promise. So here we go. We're going to dive in. And what we're going to do, we're going to move really quickly. And then we will begin to slow down as we get to the end of the book. So Joshua chapter 19, it ended. All the land had been allotted. Each tribe has their portion. But in Joshua 20, God does, begins to do two things. The first thing he does, and you'll see it in your title there, is God sets up six refuge cities. What these were, these were strategically placed. And if something happened, and the, the scriptures will call them a manslayer. What that means is, if someone accidentally or unpremeditated murdered someone, they would be able to go to one of these refuge cities where they would be entered in, they would be protected, and there would be this due process. It was a safe place for them to experience, uh, call it a trial or whatever, they're going to go before the elders, they're going to hear the stories, and they'll come up with agreement. And I began thinking, why? That's because any time blood was shed, it was a polluting of the land. So God sets up these refuge cities. Well, then in Joshua 21, he does something else. He sets up 48 Levitical cities all throughout Israel. And what these were, these were the priestly tribes. They conducted worship services. They took care of the tabernacle. They conducted sacrifices. They were this group that was set apart for special ministry. But if you remember reading back, they were not a tribe that received land. So out of each tribe, there was a city and pasture that was allotted to the Levites. So these were like uh, in Shiloh. We're going to see that in a minute. This was kind of the epicenter. This is where uh, the, the, the tabernacle was. This is where the place of worship. So outside that they would set up. God set up these 48 Levitical cities. Kind of like outposts. In fact it was the first multi-site you ever see in the Bible. But after we see that. Look at verse 43. Listen to the beauty of Joshua 21 beginning in 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. So they've entered, they conquered, they're possessing the land. And goes on to say, not one of all of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. I mean, not a word, not a single word is now left unfulfilled. God has done it all. There's rest, there's peace, there's completion. I can't imagine how this felt to them. All this waiting 600 years after the promise was made. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and seven years of fighting, all had come to pass. So now, beginning in ch uh, chapter 22, you're going to see three addresses, uh, three speeches by Joshua. So here's where he is. He's in Shiloh. Remember, this is the epicenter of where all worship, and by strategic design, look where God has placed it, right in the center. This is where Joshua resides. This is where the tabernacle is. It is a center of worship. So look at verse 1. 
At that time, Joshua, he's going to summon the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that the Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you've obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day. You have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possessions lie, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law of Moses, a servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them, and he sent them away, and they went to their tents. So you remember what happens? You've got two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. When they're entering into the land to conquer it, the fighting men go with them and they risk their lives to help their brothers conquer the land. But now, it's time for them to be sent back. Man, there was probably thousands of bro hugs going on and high-fiving because there's this bond that happens when people battle together. It was probably a very touching scene. But then scripture is going to paint a very dramatic scene. So everyone's on cloud nine. I mean, the promise of 600 years has been fulfilled, 40 years of wandering, seven years of fighting, and it is all over. These men have been away from their families for seven years are heading back east. And in Joshua 22, verse 10, it says, And so the two and a half tribes, they came to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And notice what they do. They built an altar there by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So what they do, they left uh, Shiloh. They're heading back east. And we're not really for sure on which side of the Jordan this happened, but it's somewhere around Gilgal. They stop there, and they build an altar of enormous Size, imposing, it says. Now, that seems harmless, right? But hold on. Notice what this does to the western tribes in verse 11. And the people of Israel heard it. And behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And here it is. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh, and notice, to make war against them. What in the world is happening? They've gone from celebrating and fulfillment of the promise of conquering and possessing the land. They stop and they build this altar. And all of a sudden, these brothers that they have fought with for seven years, they are ready to go to war with them. And we have to stop and go, what is happening? So the first few times I read this, it sounds just like a jealousy or a pride thing. So the Western tribes, notice what they do. They're going to send a group of people. But the important one is, notice who they choose to lead this group in verse 13. And the people of Israel sent the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. 
Phineas, not Phineas and Fur, but Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. I know it sounds harmless. And with him, the ten chiefs, the one from each tribal families of Israel, every one of them, the head of the family, along with the clans of Israel. So this group, led by a man named Phineas. Now, that is not a very impressive name. But when the eastern tribes saw this man coming, this would have been like Clint Eastwood, Rambo, the Equalizer, and the Punisher were all combined into one person. Phineas was someone you would have feared. In Numbers 25, it's this crazy scene where Israel has been worshiping the God of Baal. They get together and they're trying to figure out what is God going to lead them to do. And in fact, it says they were whoring with the daughters of Moab, meaning they were yoking themselves with Baal. So God told Moses, take all the leaders and hang them. So one guy finds a Moabite, a Midianite woman, and he brings her to uh, the people where they're gathered, trying to get some sympathy. And it's scripture tells us the people began weeping and crying. Well, not Phineas. Phineas gets up, he leaves that group, he grabs his spear, he goes into the chamber of an Israelite with a Moabite woman, and he drives his spear through them both. So when the eastern tribes saw Phineas coming, they thought this can't be good. Because look at verse 16. This is why they were so angry and ready to make war. It says, that's the whole congregation of the Lord what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sins of Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? For which there have come plagues upon the congregation of the Lord? That you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So this wasn't a jealousy or a pride thing. As they've seen this over and over. They've seen God punish Israel for the sins of one man. And they have seen him punish Israel for the sins of the nation. So why are they so upset? Why are they ready to wage war? It's because they now have a zeal for pure and holy worship. There was only one place that they were to make sacrifices, and that was in Shiloh at the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelled. So they were passionate and they serious about true worship to the point they were ready to go to war with their brothers. Well, but the two and a half tribes, they say, whoa, hold on, hold on, you misunderstand. They said, listen, this isn't an altar of sacrifice. It is one of an altar of remembrance. They want to build this so that they can teach the next generation about their God. So in verse 30, when Phineas the priest and the chiefs and the congregation, the heads of Israel, the families of Israel who were with them, they heard the words of the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the people of Manasseh spoke. They said, it was good in their eyes. So here's the first thing that we see, an unchanging truth about God. That God is jealous for his worship. That to be the people of God, we must give him 100% allegiance. He says, you can't have anyone else. 
It's like in marriage. We are told you must be a one-woman man and a one-man woman. That God alone is worthy. And he is jealous for his worship. So then Joshua gives us a second address. We go from Gilgal. We go back to Shiloh. And here's what he does. He gathers the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers. Now, Joshua knows something. He, he knows his time is running out. In fact, in Joshua 23, 3 through 5, it reminds them of how God had defeated their enemies and given them the land. Over and over, he reminds them of this. But then he's going to stop and give them a warning. And he is going to give them a roadmap that shows how sin and rebellion works. And the interesting thing is, that has not changed. So look at verse 6. So he reminds them of all that God had done to defeat their enemies. And then he says, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Turning aside from it, neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with the nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling, and notice that allegiance language, cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. So what does he say? He says, be strong, keep God's commands, and do not mix with other nations. But notice the reason. These were pagan nations. He knew his people were weak, and they would simply fall back into worshiping false idols and worshiping other gods. But God is jealous for his worship. But notice the progression of sin in verse 7. We have to stop and talk about this. Notice he says, do not mention their gods. Now that seems a little severe. Don't even mention them. What am I just supposed to point? But I think he's saying don't give sin a window. Not even the, the remote possibility because notice when you name them you will serve them and swear by them that, that sin quickly takes hold so when you mention them when you allow it in it begins to take hold of you and then what happens then you will bow down and worship that sin will then control us and that has not changed so joshua then reminds them once again of God's faithfulness and dedication in verse 14. He says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He says, I'm about to be dirt again. He knows he's about to die. And you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All has come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So once again, we're reminded of that constant faithfulness of God to keep every single syllable of his promise. But now notice the big truth that Joshua leaves them with. It, it, it's a truth that we often don't think about. In fact, it's one that we really probably, if we're honest, don't like to think about. But just in verse 15, just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled to you. And we like that. All the good things, I want that. But he goes on to say, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you 
from off of this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. So he says God is absolutely faithful to his promise of blessings. And God is absolutely faithful to his promises of judgment. If they remain faithful to God, and this is it, if they remain faithful to to him, it's blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But if they transgress the covenant, if they are not faithful, if they worship other gods, he will turn his anger against them. It is up to Israel to remain in the land. If they love God, he's going to bless them. If they are not faithful to him, he will dedicate his judgment to them. So here's the second truth. So first of all, God is jealous for his worship. But we have to remember God is faithful to his promise of blessing and his promise of judgment. So if Israel will remain faithful to them, guess what? They will remain in the land. So let's see his final address. He's about 110. And Joshua now moves to Shechem. He's going to move north. And Shechem is important. It's just north of of, uh, Shiloh. This is where Genesis 12, God makes the promise to Abraham. Genesis 35, this is where Jacob, he gathers Israel together. He tells them, go get all your idols, and he buries them there. But we also need to know that Shechem means shoulder, and that's going to be important. So in the next 13 verses, if you mark in your Bibles, this would be a good exercise to do. Notice all that God says when he says, I. So Jacob, or Joseph stands, Jacob stands up, and he says, thus says it the Lord. He is speaking for God. And notice, just allow your eyes to follow these first 13 verses. I took Abraham, a pagan worshiper. I led him. I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. I gave him Jacob and Esau. I sent Moses. I plagued Egypt. I brought you out. I brought you to the land of the Ammonites. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them. I would not listen to Balaam. I delivered you. I have the Parasites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gerizites, the Havites into your hand. I sent hornets before you, and I gave you land. And Joshua is reminding them this is all God's doing. And he takes them to Shechem to say this is upon the shoulders of God, not ours. It's on his shoulders. So Joshua, being the great leader he is, he draws a line in the sand. He reminds him, he says, because of all that, now, and this is a verse we've probably all heard, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and with faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers, serve beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But think about this. I've got to read that again. So 600 years later, the promise is fulfilled. They've conquered the land. They are in the land. They are standing in the place that God has promised. They've uh, diverted a disaster there with the altar. In the middle of verse 14, Joshua stands up and says, Put away all the gods of your fathers. 
And I go, what? What is going on? How can this be? I think this is because there are still some in that crowd that are holding on to the idols. Probably not looking anyone in the eye. They're looking down. They're not really wanting to listen when he calls them to be faithful. And he tells them, put away the gods of your fathers that some are still holding on to them. And for me, that's hard to imagine until I examine my own life. But then Joshua says something really strange again. He says, serve Yahweh, put away the gods. But look at verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. It reads like Joshua is giving them a choice. Hey, choose God, but if that seems evil to you, then hey, there's the God of the Mesopotamians and there's the God of the Amorites. You choose. But in fact, that's not what he's saying at all. He is not saying they're equal. He is drawing a line in the sand. And Joshua is really saying this. You can't be neutral. He says, you either serve the one true God or you are serving someone else. Else. There is no neutral ground. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve God and others. So then he makes this dedication. He says, but as for me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then I love this scene. Look at verse 16. And the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And you go, Amen. For it is the Lord your God who brought us, our fathers, up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight. They preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. The Lord, he drove them out before us, all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in this land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And I imagine the eruption of praise going on, that they get it. They've finally seen all that has happened. He draws the line in the sand, he states his declaration, and all of Israel says, Amen. And then verse 19. And Joshua said to the people, You are unable to serve the Lord. And I go, what in the world are you doing? You've got them right where you want them. You've got them to the altar. You've given the invitation. They're ready. They've made their declaration. And he says, that's great, but you can't. You cannot remain faithful. He's a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. So he says, just pick sides and when you choose, he says, you can't. You're unable. And so I think Joshua is doing two things. First of all, I think he is showing them. He is checking their sincerity. Do you really believe this? And I think he's given them a moment to kind of count the cost. That he is saying this isn't an easy believism. To count the cost, what are you really dedicating yourselves to? 
But there's a third thing that Joshua does that I don't even think he realizes it. And I'm going to show you in just a moment. So notice the people's response. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away your foreign gods that are among you. Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel, and the people of Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve. And his voice, we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And he put a place, statues and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words of the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up underneath the timbereth tree that was in the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone be witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you. Lest you deal falsely with your God. So that Joshua then sent the people away. Every man to his inheritance. So Joshua records everything that God has done. And he records Israel's response. He takes that covenant now that they are in. And he sets it next to, the, next to this tree. And what we're seeing, it's this renewal of the Mosaic covenant just as Moses had done. But there's something else that Joshua is doing that I don't even think he realizes. Because remember the condition that God has been absolutely faithful. To remain in the land, they must show God the same faithfulness. So before I close that up, look at the end of it. So Joshua ends, and after these days, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant Lord, he died, being 110. And they buried him in the inheritance at the Timonath Seir, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gas. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. They took the bones of Joseph when the people brought him from Egypt and they buried him in Shechem in the place of the land that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became the inheritance of the descendants of Joseph and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died and they buried him at Gilgal or Gibeah in the town of Phinehas, his son, which had given him all the land in the hill country of Ephraim. So at this incredible place of Shechem, meaning shoulders, they buried Joshua and Joseph's bones and Eleazar. They're all buried there. And I read that and I go, Joshua, you were wrong. You were wrong. They can do it. They did do it. It says they did it in your days, in the days of the elders that followed you, all that were alive at that time. They did it. Until you turn to Judges chapter 2. The next book. In verse 10, it says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done from Israel. And so you know what happens? They lose the land. In fact, they lose it three times. So Joshua was absolutely correct. They could not do it. And so here's the third truth about God. So God is jealous for his worship and God is faithful to his promise of blessing and his promise of judgment, which we see in Judges. But here's the third one. Where we fail, 
God succeeds. We can't, so God did. So why do I say this last one? It's because Joshua was absolutely correct. They, they could not. And think about what they had. They, they had the memories of what God had done. They had the battle scars. They had the tribal cities. They had the tabernacle at Shiloh. They had the covenant of God. They had the law of Moses. They had their new covenant under Joshua. They had the Levite cities, the refuge cities. They had the remembrance altar at Gilgal. They were the ones that experienced the fulfillment of a 600-year promise. And they had all the zeal anyone could have imagined, even willing to go to war with their brothers over it. But Judges tells us they could not keep it, their end of the covenant. They could not remain faithful to stay in the land. But what they did not know is that this... This was a group of people that would never reach the end of God's grace. So God does something. Since Israel could not remain faithful, they could not remain obedient because it doesn't take long. All you have to do is turn some pages. And you find that God sends a new Israel named Jesus. The one that could do what Israel could not so I want you to know this about this incredible book. Joshua is about God's faithfulness. Haven't we seen that over and over and over again? But you know what it's also about? It's about our lack of it. That Joshua, in fact, the entire Bible is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves. Joshua, in the book of Bible, is this one collective story really about our complete inability. And so Joshua was right. Israel... You can't remain faithful. And you know what? We can't either. But Joshua and the entire Bible is also about something else. It's about a people experiencing grace upon grace upon grace. That is about the one whose shoulders this is on. This is not upon our shoulders. It's up on his. So church, hear this. Christianity is not just try harder. Christianity isn't about getting yourself together so that God can use you. Christianity isn't this complete these steps and then you're going to just find this blessed life. Christianity is not about, you know what, God will do the 50% and then all you have to do or the 90 and then you just have to do the rest. Those are all false gospels. In fact, they are not gospels at all. So what is Christianity. It's realizing what Joshua knew. You can't. Not even on your best day. You will never be faithful and obedient enough. So Christianity says, don't look to yourself. Don't look to your own shoulders, but look to the one. Trust in the one. Believe in the one who did. Jesus, the true Israel. So God is, he is jealous for his worship and rightly so. He knows how fickle our hearts are. We see God is faithful to his promise of blessing each and every word, but he is also faithful to his promise of judgment. But the great news is where we fail, God will always succeed. So here's our hope. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.